Hello and welcome to Hot Take. I'm Mariana Yees Hegler. And I'm Amy Westervelt. Mary, today we're going to talk about something that tends to really freak people out, but, you know, maybe it shouldn't. Should the U.S. nationalize its oil companies? Big question. Yeah, I'm going to be real honest. I don't even know what that means. But we (laughs) have the perfect person joining us to talk about it. Kate Aronoff, the climate reporter for The New Republic. That's right. Kate has been talking about nationalization for a while now, and I think she tackles it better than anyone we know. Before we get to that conversation, though, a little background for why we're talking about this now in particular. In a word, Russia. Okay, so here's what I do know, or think I know. (laughs) So Russia had barely even gotten started in Ukraine before the fossil fuel companies were clamoring for even less regulation so they could drill more. Mm -hmm. And they blamed the spike in gas prices on all sorts of things. Biden's ban on Russian oil, the existence of some mythical climate policy that was keeping them from drilling more, the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline. But none of that is actually true, is it? That's right. None of it's true. Knew it. Um, Knew it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) First of all, gas prices don't necessarily map to actual supply and demand. They're more of a reflection of what's going on in energy markets. Sometimes, like, Mm. eventually they might map to supply and demand, but they are not right now. Uh, They're also partially set by the oil companies themselves. So oil companies set wholesale prices for the gas stations. Um, So, you know, obviously the retail prices are based on the wholesale prices, and those are set by the oil companies. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like in the same way that, you know, dairies set the wholesale price for milk and that, you know, plays into the the price at the grocery store. Oil companies Mm. set the wholesale prices for oil. The oil companies are also pretty much in control of production. So this whole idea that like someone is telling them how much to produce is complete bullshit. They're the ones who decide Uh, what to produce. They could maybe be constrained by a lack of pipelines or export terminals, but there really haven't been any restrictions put on those by the Biden administration. And in fact, earlier this month, FERC, which is this wonky federal agency that's in charge of approving pipelines, they decided not to implement a policy that would require them to consider the climate impact of new pipelines when they're permitting them. So they can just put a pipeline down with climate impunity. Yeah, it's crazy. Not thinking about the future at all. Yes. The whole way, like, there there are actually guidelines, and FERC could and should implement them when it comes to looking at the climate impacts of pipelines. But under the Trump administration, they decided to limit how they look at that um, to just, like, the emissions that are associated with building the pipeline, not with, like, how it's actually going to be used, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. This is why it drives me crazy when they say that government inaction is the cause of climate change, because there's a lot of fucking action. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then this whole like this whole story about how the Keystone XL pipeline would have like saved us all from high gas prices or, you know, been able to like help with this whole Russia situation is totally bullshit. Um, First of all, Keystone was primarily earmarked for exporting oil and gas not for domestic mm-hmm. supply. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't have really um, necessarily mattered to domestic supply. And even if it hadn't been canceled when it was, it wouldn't have been anywhere near completed by now. It wouldn't have been completed until like the end of 2023 at the earliest. So the idea that it would have mm-hmm. been like helping right now, not true. And 
on top of the fact that less than 10% of it was built when that permit was canceled, they still hadn't figured out how they were going to pay for finishing it. They they had like 80% of their budget left to find to finish that project. So this idea that like there was this amazing pipeline that was almost done that would have totally helped us, it's, none of it's true. Mm, why am I not surprised? Yeah. Which brings us to the role of the United States as a global exporter of oil and gas. I see mm-hmm. them talking about this all the time on Twitter, this energy independence stuff, and we need to drill for more national security and energy independence. But if we're so energy independent, why is all this Russia stuff even our problem? Yeah, that's a very good question. (laughs) Um, So a lot of what we're seeing right now is pretty reminiscent of what the country went through back in the 70s. So the U.S. supported Israel in the Arab-Israeli war. And in response to that, the Arab members of OPEC, which is the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, they put a ban on exporting oil to the U.S., so at that time, actually, hmm. the, the, like the supply crunch was real. There really was like not enough oil, and prices shot up, and people had to line up for gas. People were assigned mm-hmm. particular days of the week that they were allowed to go to gas stations. It was crazy. So in 1975, the government instituted an export ban. They said, "We don't want this mm-hmm. to happen again. We need to, we need to keep our supply of oil here." The end. And that was in place for more than 30 years. It was actually uh, only lifted in 2015 under Obama. And that was mostly driven by the fracking boom and a lot of lobbying from the oil and gas guys to get Mm. President Obama to lift that ban. Hmm. I remember 2015. Yeah, it feels like 100 years ago. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, I want to take a quick moment to point out that at the time, the government and the oil companies knew about climate change. And now here we are again, beholden to global markets. I feel like we'd be more energy independent if we weren't depending on a finite resource buried deep in the earth. But what do I know? Yeah. Why do you hate freedom gas so much, Mary? (laughs) For a lot of fucking reasons. Number one is just methane. It's just methane with a cute little name. It's actually not that cute. It's kind of a shitty name. Uh, yeah. So yeah, all of this, um, all of the stuff that that the industry was talking about to get the export ban lifted was total bullshit. But unfortunately, like right now, I think I don't think that the the conversation about reinstating an export ban is even like a remote possibility because people are like, but what will Europe do? We need to help them with our gas. The nationalization conversation, though, has kind of come back into. Um, the public consciousness. And one thing that I've been thinking about, um, especially with this agreement that Biden made with the EU about building out more infrastructure so that America can supply Europe with more gas, is what it would look like if the government was actually in charge of that instead of oil companies. Because, Mm. you know, the oil companies are really driving this idea that, oh, if we're going to do this and build out all this infrastructure, then we want there to be guaranteed demand until 2030. Which means that, you know, whatever increased gas production they start now, they're going to keep going at that level until at least 2030. Mm. And of course, you know, we just heard from the IPCC that not only can there be zero new fossil fuel development, but we need to start decommissioning the fossil fuel infrastructure that exists. And we know from history that the fossil fuel industry doesn't just shut things down when demand drops. So, you know, we're looking at locking in this shit for a long time. Yeah. 
And I think the IPCC said that we need to peak emissions by 2025. Yep. Which is like, what, three years from now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of not a good time to start drilling new shit out of the ground. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But then it's not like I have a lot of faith in the government making better decisions than the oil companies right now either. I mean, uh, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Democrats hauled oil executives into Congress for this hearing on price gouging about gas prices. Um, this thing that we talked about a minute ago where they're raking in profits and not really doing anything to reduce the price of gas at the pump. And that whole thing ended with the Democrats demanding that all the oil companies agree to increase production. <laughs> I was like, no. Oh, God. Well, that's just perfect. Um, I also have questions about how the U.S. is going to nationalize this oil, but without becoming like Saudi Arabia or Russia, for that matter, which don't exactly have the greatest track record when it comes to climate or human rights. Yeah, totally. So we desperately need to talk to Kate Aronoff. She's here. That conversation is coming up right after this quick break. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself, too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. On to nationalization. Kate, can you define for us real quick what exactly it means to nationalize an oil industry and what it means for the U.S.? Yeah, so I like to think of nationalization as a sort of management technology, right? So there's nothing inherent to nationalization which imbues it with any sort of specific political qualities or characteristics, um, but it can exist sort of along a spectrum, right? And so historically, uh, when the United States has nationalized things, as we do frequently in uh, wartime, for instance, the government will take ownership maybe of a certain part of the production process, right, like a factory, um, or it will take up a public stake, right? And when we talk about nationalizing 
the fossil fuel industry, for instance, it basically means, you know, as I have written about and in, in, in different places and other people such as at the Democracy Collaborative have written about um, essentially taking a public stake in this industry, which is very, very important to the sort of functioning of our country and the functioning of the sort of global capitalist system, uh, and essentially giving the public a say in this sector that we already pour an enormous amount of money into, right? So every year, conservatively speaking, the United States government gives about $36 billion to uh, oil and gas companies, give or take, and that changes year to year, changes based on the definition of what you mean by a subsidy. But what nationalization can do is to allow the government essentially to act like like any other shareholder in, in these companies, right? So companies have shareholders, those shareholders get a say in how those companies are run. And so if as in the case of Ørsted, the Danish former oil and gas company turned wind company, or Equinor, Norway's state-owned oil and gas company. The government you know, has a very large ownership stake in, in those companies and, and gets a say over what, what they do, right? And so Ørsted, there's a 50.1% stake, which is sort of the low end for what is technically considered government ownership. Uh, and Equinor, there's a 67% stake, so that's a bit a bit more considerable, right? And so what that means is that the government can do something that it doesn't do currently, which is to have a sort of say over how is oil being produced? You know, how are we making investment decisions in um, this resource, which again is very, very important to how this country operates. And obviously important to the future of the planet and whether or not we make good on these climate commitments that we've set out. How that happens can look, you know, a number of different ways. But one thing, you know, I would just say is that we have actually quite a lot of quote unquote nationalized things in the United States, right? So the postal service uh, is, is a nationalized sector, right? That is government owned. The Tennessee Valley Authority is is a big example of sort of public power, right? Set up during the New Deal about you know, 49 million Americans get their power through some kind of publicly owned or cooperatively owned electric utility. So this is very common sort of in the, in the um, scope of U.S. history. And we have a lot of nationalized institutions. And we've also nationalized uh, institutions at various points in our history to deal with various crises, most sort of uh, recognizably during World War II, right, when about a quarter of manufacturing in the United States was was nationalized at one point or another to meet national security demands. And, you know, maybe the last thing I'll say before we dive in a little bit deeper is just that this is sort of normal for how especially major oil producing countries sort of run this part of their economy, which in some cases like ours is a, is a pretty big is a pretty big chunk of it um, because these resources, you know, belong ostensibly to everyone, right? They are sort of under our feet and the public should get some say over how they're governed and uh, get some benefit, right, from how these profits are divided. So right now what the United States government does is hand those profits off essentially to uh, already very rich people 
um, without, you know, providing much of a benefit to uh, the vast majority of, of us who are forced to live with the climate crisis, who are forced to live, uh, in some cases, next door to these hugely polluting facilities. And that is just not the case for, for very logical reasons. And the United States has a very strange energy sector uh, in that sense, and that it's entirely dominated by private industry, right? And we can make little tweaks around the edges. We have control over a little more control over what happens on public lands versus private lands. But in general, there's a sort of nudging approach um, that is just very strange in, in the broad span of how oil production happens all over the world. Okay, so you said that the postal industry is is nationalized, but did I think about private competitors like FedEx and UPS? So if we nationalize the oil companies, does that still bar other independent oil companies from popping up? Yeah, that's a good question. And and there's a lot of people, you know, and, and I won't say there are a lot of folks who are sort of actively thinking through what the nationalization of the U.S. fossil fuel sector could look like. But those that do, you know, point to the fact that this can happen in a number of different ways, right? And so in the early part of the pandemic in 2020, when uh, oil prices briefly went negative and a lot of these companies were sort of asking the federal government for support. There was this question of, well, should we, you know, provide a bailout? Should the United States government bail these companies out, which we ended up doing to a certain extent? You know, that process, if it had gone a different way, could have looked a bit more like uh, what happened to the auto industry, for instance, after 2008, when the government took a 74% stake in GM and just ceded all of its rights. And so that, you know, was in effect a form of nationalization, right? And it didn't, you know, drastically change the character of the auto sector. I mean, in part because Obama said, we don't want, you know, we don't want to run this company. We don't want to be in the business of running companies as a US government. But that was a form of nationalization to save the industry, uh, to make some very minor changes in leadership. Um, but that, you know, is along the low end of the spectrum of what we're happening. And so you could imagine, right, and it's theoretically possible that the U.S. government could buy up stakes in every single oil and gas producer, coal producer in the country, especially right now. Obviously, that would be very expensive and just totally take over the sector. But generally, when people talk about nationalization, it's a bit more piecemeal. And you could imagine something like, you know, a kind of holding public holding company that would be a sort of repository for nationalized assets. So say, you know, you take $100 billion, you buy up majority stakes and some smaller companies, and then you have this sort of institution, um, which is charged with governing them, for instance, right? And this is all, you know, a bit a bit speculative, um, obviously, we're struggling to pass much less ambitious climate policy right now. But that kind of system, right, wouldn't preclude other private um, drillers from existing. But what nationalization can often do and what public ownership can often do across a number of different settings is to sort of provide a stick, right? And to say, look, we have certain national priorities. We want to meet our climate goals. And if you don't abide by that, then we have this tool that we can use and we can bring you under public ownership. And that, that 
historically, you know, especially in the case of World War II, is how nationalization has proceeded, right? It's not that the government went in and said, we're going to all at once nationalize manufacturing. It was, we have a set of priorities we want to meet. And there are a lot of carrots that we're using to get you to do that. And here's a stick, right? If you don't, you know, accept Uh these government contracts, which are fairly lucrative, which, you know, are um, going to be good for you in the long term, then we have a harsher option uh, that we can exercise. And so we're putting oil companies in a conservatorship. So it's like free Britney and lock up BP. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I'll start that hashtag. I'll start it. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm weary to make that comparison because I like Britney Spears a lot more than I like any other, any oil and gas producing company. Oh yeah. Same. That's what I'm saying. Like get her out of the conservatorship, get them in a conservatorship, right? Like they don't know what's good for them or anyone else. So makes sense to me. That's not, um, that's not totally wrong. Yes. Let me have this. (laughs) Let me That's so interesting too because I um I I was talking to someone recently uh, Ben Franta who's like a mm-hmm. an, um, a researcher at Stanford was talking about you know like what how could we deal with oil companies' tendency to lie and mislead the public without stepping afoul of the First Amendment. And something he suggested was what he called information receivership, which is like, well, if an industry Hmm. has, you know, kind of operated in bad faith with the public over and over and over again, then you should be able to, like, appoint some sort of, you know— person who like oversees their their messages to the public and ensures that they're not misleading and I was like oh that's actually kind of an interesting way to think about it and I kind of I don't know this seems like adjacent to that in a way of like where you know they've made poor decisions over and over again and you know are just kind of focused on um profits and short-term gain and and all of that those things that are that Mm -hmm. are just not conducive to making decisions that benefit the public good. Totally. Uh, yeah. yeah. And and one thing um, that people were talking about more in sort of spring 2020, when a lot of these companies were doing quite badly, was what it looks like to attach strings to either new money that was going out to these companies, you know, the many billions of dollars of subsidies they get every year. But also, you know, if mm-hmm. the government is buying up corporate bonds, which it did in the pandemic, then what kind of strengths can you attach? And that, you know, is, is, is one sort of avenue, maybe if not for full public ownership or, you know, a 50.1% stake, then f- at least for that sort of thing that Ben was talking about, to give a little bit more say to the state to, you know, have a bit of direction over how these companies operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I guess my question for both of you, because I know, Amy, you've written a lot about this, too, is so we subsidize the oil companies quite a lot, like you were just saying. So where do subsidies and regulations end and nationalization begins? So it feels like we're like halfway to nationalization already. We just don't get any of the benefits. Yeah. So we do provide just an enormous amount of money (laughs) to these companies to basically do whatever they want with. Right. And so that creates the sort of 
situation we've seen in the last couple of weeks, and, and which Amy, you've written about, that the, the government is just sort of begging companies to drill more, right? They're, they're just saying, you know, please, <laughs> please, will you produce more oil that you can sell for $200 a barrel potentially? But that's, that's sort of, you know, what they're, what they're doing right now. But people, especially in the United States, tend to think about something like nationalization as this huge government overreach, right? As this really sort of dramatic intervention of the state. But it's not as if the U.S. government isn't already intervening in the sector in a number of other ways, right? It's not as if the state doesn't actively shape how energy production happens, and it always has. And so the way I think about nationalization is that it's redirecting that support uh, toward meeting climate priorities, toward meeting national priorities, and just having that be honestly a bit more effective than it is now, which is this really strange sort of prodding mechanism that we, you know, just provide signals for them to do kind of the right thing or whatever, you know, the administration of the time thinks is the right thing. Yeah, I don't I don't really have anything different to say. I think that I don't know, it seems crazy to me that after the billions of dollars in subsidies plus all of the many ways that the government kind of bends over backwards to help the fossil fuel industry that it has to resort to like publicly begging them to drill for more oil seems really ridiculous. Yeah, I think nationalization gets talked about as like a total government takeover. But the way that it's happened in this country and the way that people are talking about it now, it would really just kind of... um, uh, like fix this problem that you talked about, Mary, where like, you know, mm-hmm. we're we're giving them all of the like right now, I think oil companies sort of have all of the good parts of nationalization, but with none of the reins on yeah. know, their behavior. So when I first he- started hearing about nationalization, um, I think the first time I heard about it as it relates to the oil industry was like 2016 with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Mm hmm. And what I didn't quite understand is why would we want to nationalize something that we want to get rid of? So what are the climate benefits of nationalization? That is an excellent question. Yeah, so people who are listening may well be familiar with other state-owned oil companies, which are not exactly great actors (laughs) on climate change. What do you mean? Saudi Aramco is amazing. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That climate hero we all love, <laughs> yeah. uh, and that is a, a very real history uh, and 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 present reality. And on climate, you know, the sort of existing status of either publicly or privately owned oil companies does not give us much <laughs> much reason for hope. But how I think about this this question, you know, is is to just look at what has happened to the assets of, of major oil companies who are already, you know, making commitments to go net zero. However, they happen to define that. And there is no standard definition for what net zero means, as, as we well know. Um, but companies like BP, right, who cast themselves as these leaders and what that looks like on their own balance sheets when they say we're going to, you know, scale down oil production by a certain amount is that they will sell off their most toxic assets, often some of their most unprofitable assets, right, in places like Alaska, where drilling is very expensive to do. Um, Really, you know, they're not 
getting as much out of that as, as they are in other places. Um, and who do they sell that to, right? There are much less scrutinized companies or even private equity firms in some cases who come in and snap them up and then just pump up drilling as much as they want out of sort of any any public transparency, out of a lot of regulatory transparency that, that tends to accompany these bigger oil companies. And so um, nationalization sort of provides a way to keep that from happening, right? Both from a sort of client standpoint, right? And saying you can't just sell these assets off at a profit or a loss or whatever and allow some other company to just drill more uh, while you make yourselves look green and climate friendly and all this stuff. And for the people who work at these companies, right? So, you know, you can't just go and lay off people who in some cases live in places that have whole political economies structured around extractive industry. And nationalization provides a way both to, you know, actually make sure that those sites are shut down and not, you know, not just pump for more oil or coal or gas or whatever, but also to make sure that, you know, people get what could reasonably call it a just transition. Um, either, you know, allowed to retire early, sort of looking out for people who are in those sectors or in uh, the cases where people really can sort of retrain and enter new industries like something like geothermal, where there's a lot of crossover and sort of skill set people have in the oil and gas industry. Um, that can be a vehicle, a nationalized oil company can be a vehicle uh, for people to enter the clean energy economy, right? In a way that is not going to be presented if you just are a multinational oil company who wants to get rid of your worst assets and fire the people who are involved with them, right? And so it is this much more sort of managed decline if that happens sort of in the confines of, uh, you know, the government actually saying we need to shut down this production, not just get it off of our balance sheets because it looks bad or it's, you know, not profitable for us. Yeah. I feel like... um in in like extremely simple terms it's we're talking we're talking about like a managed transition mm -hmm. here which is not going to happen if the oil companies are just left up to their own devices exactly exactly which brings me back to my conservatorship i think it still works <laughs> <laughs> we just we just send the oil companies on a couple of residencies in las vegas and uh <laughs> <laughs> oh. make them work for oh. us i'm just kidding <laughs> Oh, God. Brittany, you didn't deserve that. You deserve so much better. Yeah. Okay, so how does all of this intersect with the Russia-Ukraine situation? Yeah, so right now, as people might have seen, um, and, you know, just in the sort of immediate aftermath of Russia invading Ukraine, there's this threat um, that one of two things will happen. So either uh, the European Union, which is hugely dependent on Russia for oil and especially gas, uh, will start to sanction those products, which be very difficult, um, but is is being actively talked about, or that Russia itself will cut off those taps um, as, as quickly as they can. That doesn't happen necessarily overnight, but there are mechanisms by which they could be supplying much less oil and gas to Europe. And so 
in response to that, U.S. fossil fuel companies in particular have been saying that the U.S. can step in uh, to, to fill that gap, right? We're on track to be the largest exporter of liquefied natural gas in the world. And so the sort of pitch from fossil fuel companies right now has been that, you know, American energy can step up if we unleash uh, America's energy potential, that all of that can come to the aid of the brave Ukrainian people. um, And we will, you know, create world peace by pumping more fossil fuels. That's that's the basic pitch. Um, But that is the public messaging what the companies are actually saying, especially shale drillers, um, for instance, is that they don't want to drill more, right? That they spent the last 10 years burning through investor money. Uh, The sector, you know, number of companies in shale drilling went bankrupt, have, have gone bankrupt since the Great Recession when the boom really took off. And now the ones that are left are a bit bigger and are on sort of a tight leash from their investors who are saying, we want you to grow much more slowly than you were uh, in sort of 2010, 2011, 2012, even you know more recently than that, and to return uh, really generous dividends and share buybacks to shareholders. So to make it worth our while to invest in you, you need to give us a lot of money. And that means not, you know, chasing $150 per barrel oil, not chasing $200 per barrel oil, sticking to a sort of steady path where you can prove profitability for decades to come. And so the Biden administration is now wanting to ramp up oil production, uh, wanting to, you know, get wells producing quickly, which is a very difficult thing to do in the short term after, you know, a period of less investment in uh, in new rigs and things. And so is basically begging the oil and gas industry to produce more and, you know, is, is, is walking this very awkward line um, right now of trying to be nice to the industry because that's sort of one of the only things they can do at, at, at this moment, or one of the only things they're willing to do at this moment is to say nice things about them. Um, and then on the other hand, sort of yelling at them for delivering very generous returns to their shareholders. So, so doing sort of two things at once that is pissing off almost everyone involved. And that is because we have a private sector dominated oil and gas industry and and fossil fuel industry and that they just, you know, do not have a willingness to pick up the sort of broader range of tools, which other governments use, which the U.S. government has used historically to exercise more control over how production happens and, and how to wind that down. And so the danger in this moment is that as the administration really wants companies to drill more, even, you know, and we can talk about this, um, in a way that is not needed, right? There, there is a really good argument to be made that we don't actually need this huge boom in new drilling, especially if boom in new infrastructure, uh, in order to you know meet meet demands in uh, in the short term. Um, but that they are just trying to provide the government is trying to provide all of these signals to stabilize the price of oil, maybe to pay them pay them to drill more with things like loan guarantees or to fine them, as Biden has suggested, for not drilling more. So they are using all these sort of nudging, nudging tools. But in reality, the conversations about how investment in fossil fuel production happens 
are conversations between executives at these companies and their investors, right? And so the decision of whether an LNG terminal that comes online now stays online for 30 years to come, well after uh, we need to be actively shutting down production, whether um, you know any sort of new drilling infrastructure can stay online for 50 or 60 years, potentially. That is not a conversation the government is involved in right now. And so all that the administration has done so far is to provide signals for more production to happen, which, as the industry talks about it, means building new infrastructure that will be with us for many, many decades, beyond which um, we should have transitioned away from fossil fuels. And without without a real claim to those investment decisions, those planning decisions, um, that sets us up for something very dangerous. We were already off track and we're already planning to produce much, much more oil and gas um, than was compatible with keeping warming certainly below 1.5 degrees, but two degrees, right? And so right now, because this is, you know, a, a conversation dominated by the private sector, the real danger is that the sort of indirect ways the government is encouraging companies to produce will lock us into even more dangerous levels of fossil fuel exploration and production and infrastructure than we were already on track for. And and nationalization, just to round this out, mm-hmm. could provide a way to meet, you know, sort of short-term demands and also make sure we're not locking in this dangerous yeah. infrastructure for many, many decades to come. Yeah, that kind of makes me think of, you know, the net zero targets. And uh, I was just wondering, do you know what the zero said to the eight, Kate? <laughs> Wow, just really dramatic frame shift. Um, it's an amazing segue. Uh, what did the zero say to the eight? Um, it said nice belt. Great. I like that. I like that. So good. So, so good. Okay, so I think that that, um, that whole conversation, A, yeah, I think that like the, the only way that um, – that the situation that we're seeing now, which is like this ramp up of infrastructure that's just going to be in place for decades, would would not would be less bad <laughs> as if there were a nationalized industry and someone saying, "Okay, we're going to do this for, you know, however long we need to 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 deal with this short term problem, and then we're immediately going to transition away from it." But I, I also think it's a it's a good segue into this thing that that we talked about a moment ago, where you know we do have a lot of examples examples around around the world of nationalized oil industries that are not good actors on climate. So what are some of the what are some examples of countries that have nationalized oil and are behaving the way that we would want to see the US behave? You know, I don't I don't know if if Norway is a good example or not. I don't know if there's other ones that you can think of that um that would be kind of models for this or would it be the case where it would you know, would have to be a totally different approach than what we've seen elsewhere. Yeah, I don't know if there is a great example out there. And I've um, spent a little time talking to folks in Norway, and they are massively frustrated (laughs) with the way that Equinor operates. I mean, of course, Equinor is, you know, I think, probably a bit more forward thinking than Exxon for instance. Um, but mm. not hard, not hard. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
it's a complicated situation because obviously Equinor's profits go into this massive sovereign wealth fund, which, you know, provides a lot of things we we would like, right? Like healthcare and um, a sort of generous social safety net. But the company itself, which, you know, like I said, two thirds is two thirds owned by the Norwegian government, operates very much like a private company. And, and that is in part because the sort of national mandate, right, is to feed the sovereign wealth fund that then funds the state and through investments in, in other places. So, you know, I don't think there's a great public or private sector example of an oil company which is really doing the right thing. The one place which I'm not an expert on at all would be Ersten, which is the former oil and gas company of Denmark, which uh, has transitioned almost entirely into wind, right? And so they're now a major wind developer in the United States. Mm. And that was a very difficult process uh, that involved a lot of state intervention, involved um, sort of years of planning about about how that would happen. And that's in a country which, you know, never produced a sort of tremendous amount of oil and gas. But th- that is the sort of one one kind of interesting case in which a national a national oil company did actually transition meaningfully into something into something else. And, you know, the thing that that I I, I tend to emphasize around these questions that Again, there's nothing sort of special about nationalization, right? This is just sort of a a mechanism, kind of form of ownership, a form of management um, that can be used and presents a few more options um, than than private ownership, right? A few more sort of direct paths for the government to operate. And in doing so, you know, that means that we aren't (laughs) aren't sort of begging a set of companies that have spent decades lying to the public to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a bad bet. A foolproof you know? strategy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a technology, right? And so that is subject, right, to things like democracy, which means that right. depending on how you set a national oil company up, uh, it could be under the control of Donald Trump, a, you know, in, in, in 2024, which is a very right. scary thing to consider. And so what do you build right. into the sort of charter of a new company that gives it a mandate to wind down production yeah. along mm-hmm. um, climate terms? And, and you know, I, the, the last thing I'll say on this is that I think <laughs> it's hard to imagine a situation in which the United States government moves to nationalize oil and gas companies in 2022 or 2023, or 2024, in which that Mm -hmm. is not a very radical act, (laughs) in which that is not Mm -hmm, something which has a very certain political valence and is loaded with a certain political character that, you know, is not to do the same thing that Saudi Aramco is doing, right, is not to just be another oil and gas company. I think if this happens, it will happen with a very particular set of goals in mind and is yeah. you know it, it's 2022 a lot of these state-owned oil and gas companies have been around for a very long time and i don't i'm not particularly worried about the sort of dynamics that are at play in other places where you know countries become really dependent on the revenue from these companies to fund mm-hmm. their welfare states i mean that is often kind of what happens in petro states is that 
countries will become overly dependent on so this is a sort of resource curse, right? That companies or countries yeah. are very reliant on revenues from oil and gas and have a hard time getting off of it. We don't have that problem in the United States. We're not actually that dependent mm-hmm. uh, on fossil fuels for sort of national accounts. And so it's just a much different sort of yeah. political problem than, you know, you get in, in a place like Venezuela, for instance, um, or Iraq, mm. or, you know, any number of places where huge, huge sections of their public budgets are furnished with fossil fuel revenues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I have a question I think it might be more for Amy, actually. So, like, when I hear nationalization explained out this way, it sounds actually very practical, like a very, like, you know obvious solution um but it sounds so radical when people talk about it in the media and i i assume that's probably because of america's allergy to anything that kind of sounds socialist even though we have plenty of things that actually are socialist amy is this like the first time that uh nationalization has been talked about in the media in this way for the oil industry no i mean i think this conversation honestly i swear to god i feel like we're living through the year you know 1975 again right now it's like all the you know the gas prices and all and and the last time i think there was like a pretty robust conversation about nationalization of the oil companies was in the 70s i feel like it came up again in the 2016 election a little bit um and now i'm seeing i definitely am seeing more media talking about it in in the last few months than I've seen in in quite a while. Um, Mm -hmm. But I pretty consistently see conservative media kind of immediately being like, oh, do you want to be Venezuela? You know, (laughs) so so having this, you know, um, kind of rational way of of talking about it and – um, and the point that you just made, Kate, about how, you know, the U.S. is not set up in the same way that Venezuela is and would not be as dependent on oil revenue. We're also not under punishing U.S. sanctions. Sorry. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I'm I'm curious, Kate, if you've seen other oil, like what this conversation looks like in other oil producing countries that don't have a nationalized um, oil industry like are are these kinds of conversations coming up in Australia or Canada? Um, I actually have seen them come up a little bit in Scotland, especially like with respect to if if Scotland decides to have another um, independence referendum and then joins the EU, like what would happen to the the industry there? And there, I think the conversation very much is nationalization with an eye towards transitioning off of fossil fuels. So anyway, I'm I'm just curious like what you've seen elsewhere around this stuff. You know, I pay most attention to the US. Um so I probably can't talk too much about Australia or Canada, but uh, like you, the one place that I've seen that conversation raised is is Scotland, which is this very interesting case and pretty close to Norway, right? Yeah. In, in the North Sea, and they already, you know, capture a lot of the wealth from their oil-producing regions for places like the Shetland Islands, uh, for instance, mm-hmm. which has a, a, a pretty large public wealth fund relative to its fairly small population. They do, and... And they also have a weird number of brand new children's playgrounds because yes. that's what they decided to spend a lot of that money on. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> a friend of mine grew up there and described just all of these like rec centers <laughs> that, they have yes! that are everywhere <laughs> yeah. because and, are, and luxurious because um, <laughs> they have this big this big wealth fund for like twenty thousand people. Yeah, and that's that's I that's the place that I've I've seen it most. I mean, interestingly, and this isn't um, fossil fuels, but is I think worth mentioning. So in Chile, Gabriel Boric, the newly elected left-leaning leader, uh, he has talked on the campaign trail and there's been a conversation within the sort of constitutional process taking place to rewrite their like super draconian evil dictator era mm-hmm. constitution um to nationalize lithium production. Oh, so interesting. I didn't know that. I knew they were talking about rights of nature in that process, but I didn't mm-hmm. know they were nationalizing. That's so interesting. I think that conversation is still ongoing, if I believe, but that was a campaign promise to nationalize this this resource, which in the context of Chile, which, you know, was the sort of ground zero for all of these crazy neoliberal experiments in the 1970s by mm-hmm. University of Chicago economists and others, um, would be would be pretty remarkable, um, just given what a kind of free market paradise it's been it's been painted as and yeah and, and and that would you know bolivia has a certain amount of public ownership already built into its its constitution um so that's that's the one case where i've seen this sort of conversation about a new nationalization uh, important resource talked about that is so interesting i like i um i've been really way down the rabbit hole on the rights of nature stuff lately and mm-hmm. i and it's like this conversation is reminding me a little bit of that just in that it I feel like what we're really talking about is like adjusting away from the private ownership approach to 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 public resources, you know, like this idea mm-hmm. that something that is a, a natural resource that is theoretically, you know, owned by the public and or related to the public good um can be controlled by private companies or private people for profit just kind of always leads to these sorts of problems and you need a different decision making framework to um to kind of i don't know rebalance the approach to those things i don't know yeah and it's really it's really helpful i think you know just as someone who spends most of my days paying attention to us politics like just thinking beyond <laughs> beyond the U.S. is really yeah. nice, and 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 this you know a framework that in the case of um, Bolivia certainly, and and in the case of the conversation happening in Chile is really influenced by a lot of indigenous thought about questions mm-hmm. of ownership and land, and you know just it's a very different relationship to these questions, and I think we have in 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 the United States at least from mm-hmm. the sort of governmental perspective and. It's really useful just for thinking through how do we govern these resources? Who gets a say over how this extraction happens, over who benefits from it, over the environmental impacts and biodiversity impacts of that? It's just a much, much more, I think, generative framework um, for thinking through how do we govern a 21st century economy? Yeah. You know, speaking of biodiversity and rights of nature, um, you know who you might ostensibly wind up giving rights to bears, in, in rights of nature. And do you know what you call a toothless bear? Such a incredible transition. <laughs> <laughs> a toothless bear? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I'll give you a hint. It's delicious. Hmm. 
mayonnaise. A gummy I'm bear. just kidding. <laughs> oh, gummy bear. my God. Mm. A gummy bear. Oh, my God, Amy. You're going to give me a heart attack. This part of my brain really, really not working so well today. There. That's so good. I did, I just can't. I can never think of good good answers to these. Never. It's terrible. Yeah. All right. All right. You guys tried. That was a valiant effort. I really tried. All my thinking happens, you know, it's... Okay, really I'll give you another here. one, Kate. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I know that you're really into jumping rope. It's one of the very few things you've ever tweeted about your, like, personal life on the Twitter machine. <laughs> um, have you heard the... The joke about jump rope? The joke about jump rope. Uh, no, no, I haven't heard the joke. You really can ask Amy for help with this Amy, one. can I have a Amy, hand? have you heard the joke about jump rope? I I think I know, I might know this one. So I'll pass. I'll pass. <laughs> skip me. That's oh, yes. Yes, that's it. That's it. Okay, you skip it. Good okay, job. Okay. I got one. One. One for four. So this also makes me wonder how this might map to other energy sectors. Like, do we apply it to renewables too, in which case it helps with some of the mining issues around electrification? That that goes to either one of you. Yeah, well, like you just talked about Chile. I know Bolivia has some of this. Like, have you seen it with other energy sectors too, including renewables? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because there are publicly owned renewables in the United States, right? I mean, there are places like Nebraska, which has an entirely publicly owned grid, and they are building out, you know, publicly owned renewables. I think they contract out for a lot of that. Um, but that is a very sort of like low-hanging fruit model, right, is using the existing uh, public utilities we have to right. build out build out public power and you know something that appeared in Bernie Sanders's platform for instance in 2020 was to use the Tennessee Valley Authority to mm-hmm. you know build up a massive amount of renewable power so that that's actually you know not so hard to imagine i mean it would require obviously getting rid of some of the more reactionary leadership of the Tennessee Valley Authority some pretty serious institutional reforms, including, a, you know, rural electric cooperatives, which are governed in a lot of cases by really sort of old boys networks. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a lot of existing public institutions which could do this. And there's been a sort of exciting campaign here in New York, where I am, to build public renewables through the New York Power Authority, which is this New Deal sort of era institution, um, I believe, created by FDR when he was governor of New York, which, you know, provides public power already and could be a vehicle for building out renewables as well. On the mining side, you know, I haven't seen much of a conversation in the United States about this yet, but it is sort of interesting to consider that this sector here especially is pretty new, right? We have one functional lithium mine in the United States. So so in some ways, the terms of that debate of how, you know, a critical minerals industry is built up are a little bit more fungible than they might be in something like fossil fuels, where there's so much, mm-hmm. so much history. This is a, a, a newer sector, especially if you're talking about something like lithium or other critical energy minerals, which are used for 
EVs, electric vehicles, and energy storage and things like that. Um, it's just a newer conversation. And um, like we said earlier, some of those conversations are already starting in, in Latin America. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in the United States, that's that's not here yet, but you know, probably not. Um, not to say that it will never happen. Yeah, that's awesome. Because I feel like, you know, in that one way, at least, maybe people are approaching that segment of the energy sector um, with with like a different mindset than than there has been in in fossil fuels. So a little glimmer, glimmer of hope there. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I just learned this this week, but the and and um, people like Jail Holtzman at e News and um, Theo Rio Francos, who I co-wrote a planet to win with um have been tracking this stuff you know for for many years by this point but the hard rock mining sector in the united states which governs things like lithium is governed by a law written for gold prospecting from 1872 <laughs> amazing <laughs> that is wow. wild i mean it doesn't allow there's no way for the government to collect royalties from wow. mining and just anyone can go out and stick a claim to deposits anywhere basically regardless of whether that's you know uh on treaty nation land whether there you know are other competing claims to that land uh it's a wild law and and needs to be reformed one way or another so um yeah that that will be an interesting conversation and and the need to reform that law i think is pretty evident even to like fairly centrist types so that is is a conversation to watch certainly do you think it's evident in joe manchin <laughs> <laughs> well actually it was another democrat who intervened to stop a provision of the bipartisan infrastructure bill or maybe the reconciliation bill in the last couple of months Catherine cortez masto that makes sense yes. because nevada is like the place where lithium mining is happening right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. great that's great yeah, made sure that royalties cannot be collected off of mining that happens in Nevada. That's so crazy because you would think that they would want that money in the state. Maybe they've gotten so rich off of um, the royalties they collect from cannabis that they don't need that lithium money. <laughs> I don't know. What are pennies, too? I mean, it would have funded a billion dollars worth of abandoned mine cleanup. Oh, God. <laughs> That's annoying. That's so annoying. Ugh. All right. Well, Mary, do you want to close us out here? What do you call your grandma's number on speed dial? <laughs> your grandma's number on speed Granny dial. Granny run. <laughs> Instagram. Oh. oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Awesome. Wow. Awesome. Right, I got one. I'm still proud of myself for getting one. Yeah. You did get oh, one. That was good. That one. was good. I usually yeah. get none, so no, you should be happy. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks, Kate, for having this conversation with us. It's great. Oh, actually, um, where can people follow you on Twitter, Kate? People can follow me, for better and for worse, at my name, at Kate Aronoff on Twitter. Awesome. And you should. Informative and entertaining. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Kate. Thanks so much. What a pleasure. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jules Bradley. 
Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thamali Kodakara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.